welcome to episode 10 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where we look at the collapsing world around us and ask the question, how in the world are we supposed to live here? And the short answer is, we aren't. We're supposed to come out of it, just like it says in Revelation 18.4. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. Now, that's not God recommending inclusivity, but a commandment to fundamentally change our relationship to the world. Changing a relationship is never easy, but when the world's gone bonkers, it sure helps to ease the pain. I'm going to start out by playing a little satire segment with two women who are having a conversation about the ubiquitous jab over a bit of tea. They're from Ireland, so don't let the accents throw you. I've got to say, I can identify with this conversation a little bit. Are you all right? How have you been? Good, yeah. You? Good, yeah. Just had me booster. How many jabs you had now, then? That'll be me third. Three jabs in a year. Yeah? You've not had your jab yet, like? No. Why ever not? I just don't think I need it, you know, being relatively healthy with no underlying health conditions and COVID having like a 98% survival rate. Plus, I've survived nearly two years during the world's deadliest virus with no masks, social distancing or vaccine, and I'm still alive. I'm just gonna trust my immune system. So you're an anti-vaxxer then? Well, I've had all my other vaccines, so I'm the worst anti-vaxxer ever. Are you scared of the jab? <laughs> yeah. Blood clots, strokes, myocarditis are scary. Adverse side effects are very rare. Not from what I can see and the yellow card reporting data. Those numbers can't be trusted. It's scaremongering. Besides, I'm trusting the science. And what science is that? The science? Ah, uh, you mean the science pushed by the scientists with vested interests. You know, there are thousands of scientists and doctors all over the world who are expressing concerns over the vaccine. That's just fake news. You need to stop watching so many YouTube videos. Look, I took it because I care about other people. You know, like people who can't have the vaccine because they're allergic. But how does you having a vaccine help them when they can still catch COVID from you, a vaccinated person, because we know transmission is still possible and vaxxed and unvaxxed carry the same viral load? But don't you care about other people? You know, like immune compromised people. Before 2019, did you? Because you never wore a mask before and flu kills thousands of people every year. I'm protecting the NHS so it doesn't get overwhelmed. The NHS is always overwhelmed because it's underfunded and mismanaged and the vaxxed are still ending up in hospital and still dying and then you've got the vaxxed injured ending up in hospital and with some GPs still not seeing patients face to face, they end up in E&E unnecessarily. I think you've been radicalised. Now, that will be it about the shot, but we may get back to that topic at some later date. It illustrates that maintaining relationships can be very challenging when the two people have different perspectives on truth and wisdom. So what does it mean when God calls for Christians to fundamentally change our relationship to the world? Most people think that it means we need to tweak our lifestyles a little bit. Some people might think it means that we should be more open to the other person's viewpoint. But in this case, God doesn't mean either of those things. When he tells us to come out of the world, the first thing we need to identify is what we're told to come out of. Last week, we saw that there is a timeless war taking place between two opposing forces. 
One side is led by God through his son Jesus Christ, and the other side is led by Satan through his legion of fallen angels. The war is taking place on this world, the earth. So that's one meaning of the word world. But the physical world we live on is not the world we're to come out of. God never calls us out of the thing that he created us to live on. So the term world is not describing nature or people or the social interactions we engage in with other people because those are good things that God created and he doesn't ask us to withdraw from good things. The world we are told to come out of, the world we need to fundamentally change our relationship with, is the governmental, economic, and social system that's been created by Satan to win the war. It is the means by which Satan executes his war against God's Son, Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle John in 1 John 2.15 gives some specific advice about the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In this passage, John very eloquently stated that God does not place his love into people who love a system that's designed to oppose and frustrate his Son. The key term here is love, agape in the Greek. It's not a sentiment, which is what most people think of when they hear the term love. John is not saying that the sentimentality of God, his emotional connection to us, is not in us if we love the world. Agape love is a sacrificial giving that will benefit the recipient for the recipient's sake. Using that definition, let's rephrase 1 John 2.15. Do not sacrifice to benefit a satanic system that wages war against God and his Son. Because if you do, you will not sacrifice to benefit God and Jesus. Now that sentiment might be a little bit clearer. When we practice agape love toward the world system, all we do is prove our allegiance to Satan. Instead, Christians are to withdraw our support from the satanic system so that we can actualize our allegiance to God and Christ. This was similarly stated in the Old Testament through Isaiah in chapter 52, verse 11, when God said, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, Isaiah lived under a very different covenantal system, but God spoke the same principle to the believers of his day. Under the Old Covenant, the people who bore the physical vessels that contained the sacrifices that were essential for temple worship were the priests, who carried the sacrificial elements into the temple. God told them to depart from the Gentile nations and from the Gentile ways, Gentile meaning non-Jewish, because the Gentile nations served Satan and the Gentile gods were all forms of satanic worship. Gentile people and Gentile religious practices were ceremoniously unclean because they belonged to Satan, and God wanted ceremonially clean bearers of his holy vessels. In other words, God demanded that his priests worship him and not Satan. In the New Covenant, the temple is the church institution, and the vessels are the individual members of the church. We are all priests to our God, 1 Peter 2.9, and we bear our own personal vessel, our body, for the worship of God. The Old Covenant vessels bore the physical elements of the sacrificial system, whereas the New Covenant vessels, Christian people, are the elements of the sacrificial system. We are a living sacrifice to God, Romans 12.1. We aren't physically sacrificed like Old Covenant sheep, 
but we are supposed to be sacrificed to God spiritually by putting aside our personal desires and ambitions through obedience to Christ's commandments. In John 14:15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There is that agape love again. How do we love him? We keep his commandments. In other words, we do them. That is sacrificial agape love because doing his commandments benefits Jesus. And the subjects of Jesus always do the things that benefit Jesus and his kingdom. The same idea of separating is repeated in 2 Corinthians 6.17 where it says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what's unclean and I will receive you. That sounds a lot like the passage of Isaiah we just read. And even the passage in Revelation 18.4 where we started this episode reads, Come out of her, my people. So we are to come out of the world system that benefits Satan. What do we separate from? We separate from the people who are part of the world system that works for Satan. We don't separate from people completely because our job is to lead unbelievers to God, which requires us to be around them and to interact with them. But we are to separate in the sense of not participating in the works of the world that advances Satan's agenda. This idea is repeated in Ephesians 5.11. Do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. Any time that the Bible repeats a commandment multiple times, you can be sure that it's really, really important. It's not a casual thought from God. The passage from 1 John 2 gives a little advice on the best and easiest way to come out of the world. It is to recognize and hate the things of, that belong to Satan. Do not love the world or the things of the world, John says. Now, it doesn't say hate exactly, but that's the idea. It's much easier to leave something alone when we hate it rather than when we love it. Since the command to come out of the world is repeated numerous times in the Bible, we'd better do it if we want to be part of Christ's solution to the problem of the satanic kingdom. Remember, if we're not part of the solution, then we're part of the problem, and there will be consequences for that. There's a story in the Bible of a man who had the chance to be part of the solution, but instead chose to be part of the problem. In Matthew 19, a rich young ruler came up to Jesus and asked what he had to do to obtain eternal life. This is how it went down. Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In essence, Jesus told the young man that he needed to separate from the world and follow him, which is not what the young man wanted to hear. He wanted to hear that he could buy his way into the kingdom with a gift of money, or maybe a work of justification. When it comes to choosing among difficult options, we often hear people say, well, what would Jesus do? Recently, I heard someone ask that question with regard to the LGBTQ community. This person thought that Jesus would not only support the community, but would actually belong to it because he was non-binary. People say stuff like that all the time because they don't read scripture, or if they do read it, they don't have any idea what it actually means. They are the blind leading the blind. They don't know God, and they have no clue about Jesus. Did you notice the strange thing about the conclusion of the rich young ruler's story? The young man went away sorrowful. Now picture this. There was Jesus standing with the young man, Jesus being the great healer, the man of compassion, 
the man who lifts up the downtrodden and comforts the persecuted. He stood there, and he not only let the man walk away, he let him walk away sorrowfully. He didn't hug him, and he didn't tell him it was okay. He didn't say there are a thousand ways to God and you should just do you. Jesus simply imposed a requirement that he knew the man could not bear, and when he couldn't bear it, Jesus let the man walk away. That, my friends, is an example of a hard, cold judgment, a divine penalty issued when the young man walked away from the only person who could possibly grant him eternal life, which was supposedly what he wanted. Jesus will let any of us make bad decisions if we want to, and then he will judge the decisions we make accordingly. That isn't to say there isn't forgiveness when repentance is practiced, but where there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. There was no repentance demonstrated by the young man. Feeling sad for the consequence of a poor decision is not repentance, but it is wisdom, so there's still hope. Judgment took place in that moment for lack of repentance. I know a lot of Christians who feel contempt for rich and powerful people, so they probably just figured the rich guy had it coming. But that's not what the story is about. It had nothing to do with being rich or powerful. God doesn't care about those things. He knows there will be inequalities of wealth and power that will eat away at the heart of men and women who lack them, which is why he gave us the commandment to not covet. He did not command that we implement equitable wealth distribution or power-sharing schemes in our social constructions. God does not judge unrelated issues based on how much wealth or power we hold, and Jesus did not judge the rich young ruler based on those things either. Jesus judged him on the choice he made between himself and the world because the man chose the world. Which begs the question, what do we as Christians really want? Do we really want Jesus? Or do we really want our lifestyles? Do we really want an eternity with God? Or do we really want earthly promotions? Because we tend to preferentially pursue what we really want. And what about our health? We talk a lot about health these days. Are we willing to risk our health in exchange for Jesus if that is what's required? Are you ready to give up the things of the world in actuality or just in theory? Because if you're not ready to give them up in actuality, if you haven't properly prepared yourself to give them up, believe me, you will not give them up when decision time comes. We have to be prepared or we will act just like that rich young ruler and walk away sorrowfully, expecting that Jesus will forgive us because that's what he always does. Right? Is that how the story ended for the rich young ruler who called Jesus Lord? The Apostle John advised us to hate the world so that we could more easily deal with it because it's much easier to give up what we learn to hate than what we emotionally love. We can more easily learn to hate the world and the things of the world by remembering what the world is. So I repeat this a lot. It's the system that advances the will of Satan. And Satan is evil. Satan is perverse. Satan hates what God loves and loves what God hates. Satan reverses everything about God's world and there are eternal consequences for people who imitate Satan. 
God said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Isaiah 5, 20-21 The term woe is a divine declaration of eternal judgment. People who love the world see it all backwards, the way Satan sees it. God wants us to see the world as it really is, the way he sees it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end, or for the purpose, that all who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 God didn't write that he loves the world with an emotional sentimentality. He wrote that he agapes the world, or sacrificially does what's in its real best interest. God has an eternal plan to rescue those who will be rescued from Satan's kingdom. He did not so love the world to save nature. He did not so love the world to save culture. He did not so love the world to save technology. He did not so love the world to save genetically modified organisms. He did not so love the world even to save the earth. All of these things are going to be destroyed, and in a really spectacular way. God so loved the world to save you and me, which are our spirits and souls. He did not so love the world to save our physical bodies, just in case you're wondering. Our bodies are disposable and appointed for destruction. But he will provide us with new and improved models soon enough. Satan, if you choose to follow him, is the opposite of God. Satan will try to promote nature and culture and technology and genetically modified organisms and the earth if it will defeat Jesus. Meanwhile, God sent Jesus to heal bodies and purify minds, so Satan spends his time sickening bodies and corrupting minds. God sent Jesus to grant eternal life and enrich it, so Satan degrades life in order to replace it with something better, at least in his mind. God frees people to live with him, and Satan enslaves people to stay with him. Since the world system ultimately works for Satan, what the system will do, I'm going to list a few things, and these are important. Pay attention, because this is what we're going to be talking about when we identify what's going on in the world now. What Satan will do is, he will hate people. He will glorify the earth. He will enslave nations. He will free nature from the nations. He will sicken people's bodies. He will strengthen technology. He will corrupt people's minds. He will construct artificial intelligence. He will degrade human life. And he will glorify transhuman life. And he will kill people. Those items are how we can know that something or someone is part of the world system. See how easy this is? Last week, we talked about objectives, strategies, and tactics. We looked at Satan's overall objectives and strategies, which were spelled out in Scripture through God's remembrances of times past. So if you missed that episode, go back and listen to number nine. Today, we're going to look at some specific tactics that Satan is using to achieve his strategic objectives. These tactics were spelled out in prophecy, which are God's declarations of what is to come. 
God wrote, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Isaiah 46, 9-10 So why did God write prophecy, and why should we study it? Did he write it just to gratify our morbid curiosity about the future? Did he write it to confuse us with obscure details? Did he write it to frighten us and increase Christian anxiety? No. He wrote it to help us prepare for the future in three specific ways. Number one, so that we will recognize the end times when they arrive. Number two, so we will prepare the... But let me go back to number one. The reason that's important is because the entire Bible is really centered around what takes place in the end times. That is the culmination of everything God is doing. While it's important, the the first coming of Jesus is very important for our salvation, the focus of the entire Bible is on the end times and what's going to happen then. So that's number one. Number two, so we will prepare the last generation to carry out specific instructions for that time. So we will prepare the last generation to carry out specific instructions for that time. And three, so we will be able to expose the world and its tactics so that fewer people will be deceived. Now, it doesn't matter if this is the last generation or not, the one we're in. Every generation has the responsibility to prepare in case they are the last generation, or if not, to prepare the next one. God rescues souls in many ways, but regardless of how he chooses to rescue us, every soul must recognize God's rescue effort and respond to it, to the end that all who believe in him shall not perish. To be saved, we have to believe in Jesus, which is an action, a response to a stimuli. Belief requires information, understanding, and assent. God works through his representatives on earth to convey information and understanding to those who lack it. Once we have been provided enough information, we are obligated to recognize our guilty position before God, an action, repent of sin, an action, and assent to be saved through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, an action. That is our role in salvation. Here is a clue to seeing an important satanic tactic. Our job as Christians is not just to preach the gospel to the world, but to help individuals avoid doing something that will prevent them from taking these three actions. Satan is trying to do something that will make it impossible for people to take these three necessary actions to secure their salvation. Satan needs to keep people out of Christ's kingdom so he can prolong his reign, and this is how he's going to do it. There is a widespread interpretation of the Bible that leads some Christians to believe that they have no role to play in salvation, either their own or other people's. It gives them a reason to think that they're not active participants in the process for either themselves or others, which is certainly less stressful than if they're active participants, but it's not very helpful. God expects us to participate and respond to his overtures because otherwise, 2 Peter 3.9 makes no sense. It says, The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not willing that any man or woman should perish. 
He doesn't want any man or woman to perish eternally. He does not ordain that they should perish because perishing is controlled by something else. It's controlled by a human decision. That's why God is long-suffering and patient. The scriptures that produce all this disagreement concern the book of life. The book of life is a book controlled by God that contains the names of everyone who will be saved. There are many scriptures about it. it just, you can look them up. Because the book of life was established before the world was created, and the names were written in it then, the interpretation is that God pre-selected who he would save, and the rest are just out of luck. It's kind of like it's fixed in stone. Now, this interpretation contradicts Revelation 3.5 and other scriptures that says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Oh. So, God can change who is and who is not in the book of life based on something. Based on what? Based on their ability to overcome. Overcome what? Overcome the world. That is an action. Those who do not take this action will be erased from the book of life. In other words, they'll be taken out of it. The book of life is therefore a document that is changeable, and that changes things quite a bit, that, inter that understanding. The fixed-in-stone interpretation of the Book of Life, it seems logical at first glance, but if there was no hope of salvation for those not written in the Book of Life, then why would God bother to be patient with them? That would be cruel, like my cat playing with a half-dead mouse. Furthermore, why would he be long-suffering? That means to suffer a long time. Why would God suffer over a decision that he made? Long-suffering, suffering implies regret over a bad decision, and God does not make bad decisions. Therefore, the bad decision had to have been made by the person. Now, it's true that God does all the work of salvation, but we still have a responsibility to assent to it. We must agree to be saved. There is an interesting interaction between the desires of God and the will of man that no one really fully understands. Some people will claim that because God is sovereign over everything, he directs everything. However, sovereignty does not impose any requirement on the sovereign. God can and does delegate authority and decision-making downward. God can overrule anything, but he does not overrule everything. If he did, there would be no sin and no evil in the world. He lets his creations make their own decisions, including the decision to be saved. We need to assent to salvation, but let's be clear that assenting is not saving. Let me draw an analogy, however imperfect it may be, because an analogy is always imperfect. It's never the thing. If I'm drowning, I can't save myself. It's not possible. Someone else outside of my predicament has to come in and save me. A person on a boat can throw me a lifeline, for example, but I must assent to be saved. I have to grab the lifeline. The fact that I grab the line does not mean that I save myself. I have no ability to do that. I can't do any of the work that's needed to pull me to the boat and out of the water, yet I had to do something. I had to respond to the rescue. That's the underlying theme of the entirety of Scripture. 
we have a responsibility to respond to the prodding of God. The more God prods, the more responsibility we have to respond to the prodding. God prods directly, and he prods through his emissaries. In the case of the rich young ruler, God prodded directly via Jesus, which imposed a tremendous responsibility on the ruler to respond. He chose not to respond and was judged accordingly. He was given a choice. In love, God gives all of us a choice, which is his gift to us. He also provides emissaries to plead his case for him in love and hopefully convince us of the futility of not responding. That's why God commands Christians to spread the gospel. He did not command, let go, let God. He commanded, go and tell and plead. These are not commands from a God who intends to do everything for people who will do absolutely nothing. God is not our servant. These are commands from a God who sends us out to do his work for the benefit of others. He gives us that responsibility. Now, in the midst of this work we are given to do, we have to invade Satan's domain, and Satan hates that. He really hates the fact that Christ is building his church in his own territory, just as Jesus said he would. He hates it so much that he's trying to do something about it. As always, when Satan does something, he has to work through his servants who are part of the world. These servants are doing something new that will help stop the work we Christians have been sent to do. They are doing something that will make it difficult and maybe impossible for people to respond to our work. They intend to change people in a way that will make it functionally impossible for them to assent to salvation. Let me say it again. They intend to change people in a way that will make it functionally impossible for them to assent to salvation. The Bible gives us some information about this plan, and the world fills us in on the rest of the details. We Christians cannot stop the plan from being carried out, because it's ordained in the Bible, but we can stop it from being carried out on people we can influence. We can choose to work for God, or we can sit around and eat popcorn while we watch the God show. The absolute worst thing I can imagine is getting to heaven and being told that a person who chose to reject God will suffer eternal consequences because I chose not to work hard enough for God. For those who adhere to that strict interpretation of limited election, I want you to know there is another interpretation of the doctrine of election that allows for the operation of human free will without violating any scripture or the sovereignty of God. On the remote chance that, that this other interpretation is correct, I choose to do all I can to convince as many people as possible of the truth of Scripture and the need to embrace the free offer of salvation from Jesus Christ, while there's still time. Because time is running out. And gosh darn it, time has run out for this episode, so I guess next week we will have to unpack the tactics of this demonic, evil, satanic strategy that's being actually unfurled right now, to prevent human ascent to salvation. Pray that I will be able to produce it next week. Until then, if you found this podcast interesting, useful, important, or even a little bit ridiculous, but at least entertaining, please recommend it to your family and friends. Give it a thumbs up or a happy smiley face or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. 
As I say each week, this is not a commercial enterprise and I'm not a professional podcaster. I'm just one small and unlikely person doing what I can to bring a sliver of light into the deep darkness of the world. There's no budget for this podcast, so it's limited in what I, to what I can invest, both in time and money, which is why I don't post it as regularly as I would like. I'm sorry about that. Hopefully, God will allow me to keep this podcast operating for a little while and, with his help, maybe reach some more people. Please pray for me and for it to be influential in the lives of people. Underground Christian can be heard on several platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and at long last, Pandora. They don't communicate too well over there at Pandora, but at least they put it up. Look for the bright green icon, because here at Underground Christian, we are all about green, me being a scientist and all. Maybe one day we'll talk about things that call themselves green. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. I will respond as soon as I can. If you wish to help with the podcast, please let me know in an email. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and if it's in your heart, go and do the work of God. But if your heart is hard like stone toward God, all you have to do is ask Him, and He will give you a new soft one like flesh. But you do have to ask. <laughs>